0: Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now I am proud to share that Frenesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-globalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Hello, everybody. Today, I have Dr. Joanne Chula. Uh, She is a pioneer in this whole topic of ethics and leadership. And she does extensive research on that topic in business ethics. Uh, She served before she was at Rutgers, where she is now. She served as a chair in leadership and ethics at Jepson. She was a founder on the founding faculty of that school. She's held academic appointments at Harvard, Wharton, LaSalle, numerous visiting opportunities abroad. She teaches all over the world. She serves on editorial boards, leadership quarterly leadership and the Business Ethics Quarterly. That's not it everybody. She's won awards. She's won a lot of awards and she is it's it's really pretty it's it's pretty awesome Joanne. It's you know lifetime achievement award for outstanding contribution to the scholarship in business ethics from the Society for Business Ethics, legacy lifetime achievement award from the International Leadership Association, the eminent scholar award. <laughs> right? Eminent. That's that's the galactic level at this point, right? If you're eminent. And and that was from the Network of Leadership Scholars in the Academy of Management. There's more. We will put it in the show notes. Dr. Chula, thank you so much for being with us today. We really, really appreciate it.
0: Well, it's
2: my pleasure.
1: What gaps do we need to fill in? What else do we need to say about you? What are your hobbies? What do you <laughs> enjoy doing when you're not writing <laughs> very important pieces of work? What do you love to do?
2: You mean there's things to do when I'm not writing?
1: <laughs> when you're not winning awards and, and and editing scholarly papers or writing them or teaching?
2: Well, when you win all those awards, they're just telling you you're getting old. So that's. <laughs> um, well, let's see. I I spend a well, I did spend a huge amount of time traveling. I've. I've been to six of the seven continents, but my husband refuses to take me to Antarctica because he thinks it's environmentally um, irresponsible, so we won't be going there.
1: Okay, okay. (laughs) Uh,
2: But that's our main hobby. Uh, We like to snorkel, so we've snorkeled all over the world. And uh, so needless to say, I miss both of those tremendously right now. Um, Aside from that, yeah, those are the two main things. I also cook. Um, When I was in graduate school, I cooked in restaurants, and um, I'm Italian, so there's a lot of Italian food coming out of my kitchen, and so I like to cook and feed people when I'm not writing.
1: (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, I know you're an East Coaster, Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, and... So I'm sure you've been to Acadia. We were just there about a week and a half ago, Acadia National Park. Just yeah. incredibly beautiful, right? Not, yeah. not snor- it's not a place to snorkel, but no. it's a place to enjoy the beauty.
2: Yeah, it's
1: lovely. Well, so what I'm excited to chat with you about today is this whole topic of leadership and ethics, obviously a hot topic in recent years. But what I would love to know is what you're thinking about now. I mean, you have written extensively on this topic. A wonderful book, The Heart of Leadership, and so many academic articles on the topic. What are some of your contemporary thoughts, just questions even you have going on through your head as you continue to think about and write about this topic?
2: Well, I guess the main thing, what I'm thinking about now, actually what I'm writing about now, is the role of emotion in leadership. Hmm. I had written a paper, was published last year, on um, resentment
0: hmm.
2: and the power of resentment in leadership. And what I've been fascinated with, given the, the political developments, not only in this country, but other parts of the world, is really understanding there are things about leadership that circumvent reason. Hmm. And I want to try to understand what those are. And my first exploration into resentment was very telling and actually somewhat predictive of what might have happened. And let me just give you a simple example. Yeah. The reason why I was overwhelmed with this thought is that resentment is a kind of emotion. Philosophers have written about it uh, quite a bit, Nietzsche, for example. But it's it's a kind of emotion that gets people to behave in ways that are against their own self-interest. Hmm it can get people, and and the leader follower leaders can get people not because they convince them but because of the kind of relationship and emotions they have about the leader they will do things that are seriously against their own self-interest wow that fascinates me i mean i really want to understand that phenomena because it's kind of against everything we think about how we behave as human beings
1: yeah yeah we'll say more about that so the role of emotion. What are some things you're finding? What are you learning as you explore that topic?
2: Well, you know, in leadership studies, there's a huge amount of literature. I even, you know, looked at how many use Google to find out how many articles were written about emotional intelligence. Everybody loves emotional intelligence. It means everything and nothing. Yes. Uh, I've had some really interesting discussions (laughs) about this because, you know, it started out as a particular kind of empirical construct that you know, people did experiments on, and there were four factors to it, yada, yada. You know how weird academics are. But, um, but then of course the whole idea seems so intuitively right. Oh yeah. Some people really understand other people's emotions and boy, this must be really useful for leadership, especially if they reflect on their own emotions. Well, yeah, that's good. And it's common sense. No problem with that. Um, Huge debates, if you look at the literature, John Antonakis and some of the other uh, leadership scholars, uh, huge debates over the quality of the research and the quality of the construct. Uh, some people say it's the same as social intelligence, which came before it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where leadership scholars, that's where most of the literature is in leadership studies. So, But what I'm thinking about is not emotional intelligence. Yeah, no. Yeah but are emotions intelligent? And so I want to look at it through the eyes of a a former uh, best friend and colleague of mine, uh, Robert Solomon, who for 30 years we sort of thought together and talked together a lot about this. And he's a fairly well-known philosopher. And he wrote extensively on emotions. As a matter of fact, psychologists use his work And he's kind of one of the base pieces of literature in it. And he talks about this issue. And he says some really interesting things about emotions and intelligence. Hmm. He says, for example... You know, it's almost like a joke to say, "What is the meaning of life?" Right? <laughs> and it's it's a crazy and wild
1: question. You've got Monty Python's version, and then you've got you know, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and I love Monty Python. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's a crazy question, and philosophers have written about what's wrong with the question and everything else. But what Solomon says is really interesting in terms of the intelligence of emotions. He says that emotions are how we experience meaning, that you can't have meaning without emotions. Oh, wow. It's it's fundamental. And furthermore, if you look at a lot of the philosophical literature and certainly a lot of the literature in leadership, even on emotional intelligence, what you find is there's a historical battle that is, is portrayed as going on in every human being between emotions and reason. And, you know, for a philosopher like Kant and ethics, reason always has to win, right? Uh, we look at, at uh, emotional intelligence and a lot of ethical theories. It's like beating down those emotions. And then <laughs> people talk about emotion. Have you ever thought about how we talk about it? We talk about emotions as if we're passive bystanders. So we fall in love. We're overcome with passion. We're yes. like this helpless person that... Emotions keep jumping on us, making us do stuff. <laughs> so I find that whole view that we have of emotions, and of course, Solomon's comment, absolutely fascinating, because instead of pitting motion against reason, or talking about intelligence about emotions, we really need to understand the intelligence of emotions. And so going back to going back to resentment, well, here you say, well, that's a dumb emotion if it makes you do things against your own self-interest, right? But there's an intelligence to that emotion that we need to understand, given the input that people get that creates it, which is sense of grievance, sense of being wronged, sense of humiliation. And if you believe that about what's going on around you, then it's an intelligent response. Hmm. Battle response because it's like this is this is we're locked in this battle this grievance that's so powerful we're willing to risk our lives for it just as people are willing to list their lives for other things so these are some of the things that I'm uh, have been exploring and, and thinking about in relation to emotions and leadership.
1: My head is in seven or eight different places right now. I love it. I love it because yeah, you can. How has the work of Ekman? informed anything that you've done has it
2: not really. Paul ekman no i mean i know of his work but it yeah. hasn't really okay um so who am i looking at well i'll tell you in, in regard to resentment there's a philosopher named max schiller who was writing at he was writing in the uh 20s 1920s yeah and it's spooky
1: really like so how so
2: he, he describes donald trump He describes what he calls the Arabist, and he's really describing Hitler, but, and not to say those two are the same, they're completely (laughs) different, but he describes the social phenomena that allows for leaders like that to emerge and use resentment as a way of gaining power. Hmm. And it's exactly like the social phenomena we see here. So I'm not at all saying those two are equivalent in any way, but I am saying, there are social conditions, and of course we know in leadership studies are leaders born or made. Well, you know, sometimes they're just made by the conditions around them and the context that they're in. Yeah. So he's had a huge influence on me. Um Damasio has had a lot of influence on me, his his work. Um, who else have I been reading lately? Um Ashkenazi.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Neil. Neil had, Wasn't there a letter? Weren't there? Was it the letters between Neil and Antonakis? Was, was it? Does leadership need emotional intelligence? Was that the 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 series of articles?
2: Oh, I love that. That is the best dialogue, and it's very <laughs> funny in so many ways. But it's and it's delightful to read, isn't it? Yeah. It's just yeah. A, a terrific one. But yeah. So he's one of them. So there's that whole group of people in leadership studies. So I've been reading their stuff. Uh, The focus of what I want to write about is more how the philosophical literature might shed more light on it than the parameters of sticking within the way the discussion goes forth in the leadership literature.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I have not had a chance to ask a philosopher this question, so you are the only one in front of me. (laughs) So let's see how this branch of the conversation goes. I've I've had a lot of people I even have a podcast episode with a gentleman named Steve Kempster. You may you may know, oh, Steve. I know Steve. Yeah. Yeah. And and his his thing right now is leadership for what? You know, but leadership for what, Scott? Right,
2: right. Well, Steve Kempster writes on emotions too. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: How do you think about that question? How do you think about that question? Leadership for what?
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think of it in a couple ways. First, in the broader context of the fact that leadership as a part of the human condition is something that, that is sort of necessary for how we organize ourselves in society. And so that's what it's for. It's for helping organize ourselves in society when it's impossible for everybody to come to an agreement on it. And here I'll tell you a very strange story.
1: Okay, <laughs> and it stems from you're gonna uh, you're gonna counter my strange shift in conversation with a strange story. Oh, I love it. I'll
2: tell you a very strange story. <laughs> okay, I was back. I guess it was around in 2000, and I um, I had a UNESCO chair in leadership studies for the United Nations Leadership Academy, and so they sent me down. Uh, I traveled through uh, several African nations to talk to people about our programs and stuff like that so when i was in south africa i was put in touch with the desmond tutu peace foundation mm-hmm. and uh which i ended up being on their board for six years and th- at, i just happened to be there at this amazing moment when they were having this reunion at the anc on robin island and okay. they said do you want to come and of course i did And the jailers were there and all the key characters uh, from the uh, ANC that were in prison there. It was was an amazing thing. So I'm sitting there and talking to people and they ask him what I do. And I said, well, I, I study leadership. And they said to me, oh, you have to talk to Lee Berger. I don't know how many people told me I had to talk to Lee Berger. Well, who in the heck is Lee Berger? (laughs) Well, you're going to love this. Lee Berger is a paleontologist. Really? Yes. (laughs) A very famous one. He's one of the people who discovered, not Lucy, but what's called the footsteps of Eve, which is these really ancient footsteps. Okay. All right. So this intrigued me so much. I was in Cape Town. I flew to Johannesburg. He's at uh, Witts University, and I made an appointment to see Lee Berger. (laughs) (laughs) So I get there, and I tell him this, and I said, everybody came and told me I needed to talk to you about leadership. Well, it turns out this paleontologist who – He's he's a leg man. By the way, paleontologists are either leg men, or <laughs> leg men, and a leg person is someone who studies things like footsteps and leg bones.
1: So, that, so <laughs> <laughs> this is something I maybe could have not known. <laughs> I didn't know,
2: that. but but you know that they obviously it's harder to find skulls than it is to find legs.
1: Yeah. Oh wow. So so there's people who specialize just in legs.
2: Yeah, well, they don't just do special, but they they do a lot of work with those artifacts, right? Okay, so they, okay. They have to, so. Anyway, so then I said, okay. So what does this have to do with leadership? And then you know that old song, the leg bones, leg bones connected to the thigh bone. <laughs> yeah. Well, he kind of did one of those and got all the way up to the head. Okay, <laughs> and was explaining to me that uh, that leadership had there were certain conditions starting from studying the legs and the f- footprints and all of those kinds of things uh there would be certain physiological conditions that would be necessary conditions before you could actually have the emergence of leadership as we know it but wow yeah but that certain things they find in terms of the situation of the bones and other things would sort of give you indications if the social structure was such that there actually were, um, that there actually was a kind of leadership that created a kind of organization that would allow for certain artifacts that would allow for for uh, all of these other things to happen. Wow, um, my, my head just about
0: <laughs> exploded. <laughs>
2: I'm sitting there going, well, this was worth traveling (laughs) a
0: significant
2: distance to find out. Wow. And so anyway, but apparently he had been going around giving talks about how all of this structural stuff was related to the emergence of leadership. So I became really, really fascinated by that.
1: Wow. Wow. And so
2: leadership for what? We can say going way, way back that there are. Like, like,
1: <laughs> took us old school biological, there.
2: Biological, <laughs> physiological reasons why we leadership. So yeah, <laughs> I don't think I've ever told Steve that. I, I last saw him in Lancaster.
1: <laughs> you need to tell him that the next time you see that. I've heard you've been gallivanting around the world, wondering what leadership what was for. You know, for what? And then, uh, right. oh, that's great. Okay, so that's one level. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. So let me bring it down to earth or, or something vaguely credible. Well, I think on the other level, though, the leadership for what it stems from it, because it's the question of, you know, what is the level of organization that actually requires a leader? And more importantly, there's an ethical side to it. If you think of what leaders do, they're people who take responsibility for something. If hmm. you're the leader of an organization, you take responsibility. So it, the question becomes, when is it necessary for that? So in ethics, there are huge problems with what collective responsibility. So all of these wonderful models of shared leadership and group leadership and fluid leadership and you name it kind of leadership, the problem with that is ultimately some person or group of people have to take responsibility. It's, it's fundamental for moral accountability. So when we look at what leadership's for, one is moral accountability. Okay. Um, the other is just all of the practical elements of organizing people to uh, achieve some kind of common goal. So yes. I don't know what Steve's looking for, <laughs> uh, whether he wants to throw it out or not. But you know, <laughs> I'll have to talk to him about it.
1: <laughs> well, I, you know, one one other way of looking at it uh, that I've at least been thinking about recently would be the the UN, um, sustainability goals, right? That are our efforts working to. Advance the world, at least in part, in some way, in these different dimensions, and I I think that could be somewhat of where he's he's heading. You know, is it just simply for shareholder value, or is it? Are are we looking at it from a different lens as well, so that we're? You know, sometimes that's called the triple bottom line. Sometimes that's it has different names as well, but. It's an interesting, I love how you kind of framed your answer to that question from paleontologists, right? To just how we organize and any other way you think about that? Well,
2: I mean, here's what I'd like to emphasize about it is the fact that, you know, as much as everybody doesn't like, you know, the single view of leadership, I mean, that's out of favor, the heroic view of leadership when it comes to moral issues or ethical issues like the environment or labor uh, policies and things like that, history tells us, and again, I'm not a scientist, so I, I use history. History my data set.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when
2: you're studying leadership, it's a really good one because the stuff happened. you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you can look for patterns in history, and I, and that's generally a lot of my research is looking for patterns in history. But what we see is when there is a moral issue, it tends, and nobody's going to like me for this, to require leadership. Hmm. And it can be leadership of a group, but what history shows us, and again, it has to do with attribution. You know, do we attribute everything Gandhi did to Gandhi? Well, no, there's other people. Yeah. Angela. We can go through that list. But for some reason, and i, I this notion of moral leadership is fascinating. For some reason, you kind of need a point person, hmm. it's sort of like needing stra- statues for religions. Hmm. You know, hmm. you, you need to have that. So one of my theories is why, why leadership, uh, as much as people don't like it, is it's incredibly helpful at focusing people on something like uh, the environment or whatever. And what you also see in history is the flip side of that question. And the flip huh. side is that when you don't have a point person for it, it often doesn't work out as well. Yeah. So moral causes and moral action often requires one person, and we don't have to call him or her a leader. We could say one person to take an initiative to stand for the values and to be able to communicate.
1: Well, and so that would, I mean, my mind immediately, at least in the States, goes to Martin Luther King Jr. there, where he was never elected leader of a movement, yet he became a focal point for that work. Of course, there was Abernathy, people like Fred Shuttlesworth. You have all kinds of folks who are in, but but he becomes that focal point. Does that resonate?
2: Yeah, and, and one of the other studies I did um, because I, for three years I was at the University of Fort Hare in South Africa. I was a visiting person. I'd go in and work there for a few months. But one of the things I did is I had archi- did archival research on Nelson Mandela. So the A C archives is there. And I wrote a paper on it called Searching for Mandela. The saint is a sinner who keeps on trying, which is one really? of Mandela's favorite sayings. And one of the things you study, you find with Mandela, especially when you look at his unpublished personal papers, as I did, Mm -hmm. is that he was constantly saying, you know, it's not just me, it's a lot of other people. But what the ANC said through that period that he got put in jail, because keep in mind, he could have gotten out of jail six times.
1: Oh, I didn't realize
2: that. No, he kept turning them down because they said he'd have to give up politics. And he said, as long as my people aren't free, I'm not getting it. I'm not coming out. And but what, what you learn from studying someone like Mandela is the ANC leadership understood, even though it was controversial, that it was really important to have a point man. And it was really important to have the face and the embodiment, because it was easier for people around the world to understand this guy in jail. Uh, who who had done really interesting things. He was youth leader of the ANC. I mean, the story of Mandela is fascinating, but they needed to have they needed to have their kind of celebrity. And, and, and I remember one of the quotes that's interesting when he became president, because he was quite old and he'd been in jail all those years. And yeah apparently Tabo and Becky and several other people really handled the day-to-day stuff. He said, I'm, I'm more of an ornament than a president. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of, he makes a lot of interesting comments like that. And one of them is a kind of modesty, but I don't know if it's a slightly false modesty because he was aware of the importance of being humble. Yeah. But, um, but it was a lot of it was a kind of reflectiveness. And then in his very, very last the last thing that he wrote before he, he had become he had dementia, so he was unable to write, he wrote this interesting thing where he said, I don't feel like anybody really knows me. They know the image of me. They wow. know the other person. And that's where the saying, that's why I titled the paper, that's where it came back because he had written it in letters to people and he said, um, they don't see me, uh, they see me as a saint, but I'm only a saint as a sinner who keeps on trying. Yeah. So I, I think the same could be said of someone like Gandhi or Martin Luther King is they become iconic leaders, they embody a cause, and to some extent they're no longer themselves anymore because mandela said he didn't think people really knew him yeah and and i think there were times you know when he was president that he even got kind of annoyed because people would criticize him for liking to hang out with celebrities or whatever but you know you got to say the guys poor guy's been in jail all these years why not you know? yeah yeah why not have some fun
1: well it's interesting I'd never really thought of this, but, and this could get a little bit to some of the resentment work that you're doing. Tell me if it's, if I'm totally off base here, but there's that transition probably for these individuals, whether it's Adolf Hitler or Donald Trump who, who becomes starts to embody that movement or if it's Mandela, Martin Luther King or Gandhi, it, 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 start that, that shift occurs somewhere. And, and that shift is an interesting space.
0: Mm-hmm. It is. When
1: someone, when someone moves to a level that is almost larger than, does that make sense? How, what's fill in the blank of what I was supposed to say there, larger than life, larger than, yeah. you know,
2: well, they become, I mean, so if we look at, you know, Mandela or Martin Luther King or Gandhi, we see, that embodying that movement made it easier for people to understand. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it's sort of interesting that, you know, two out of three were martyrs. Yeah. Right. But but it made it easier for them to understand. it. In the case of Trump, he became the other side of that as a kind of cult of personality, that yeah. he becomes such a powerful personality that he is the Republican party, or he is this set of ideas and people come to admire and look to him as not so much the set of ideas, but him as an embodiment of a set of feelings they have. Yes. So he's the and, and, you know, I'm not saying they're wrong because I think a lot of the grievances that people had are legitimate, that they felt passed by, they felt looked down on, all of those things, I mean, it's not like, you know, the, the left were a bunch of saints and the right were a bunch of demons. There's, yeah. there's a fault on both sides there. But I think what happened is he embodied, embodied it in a somewhat negative way because what's interesting is it's a lot more about him than his ideas. Yeah. You'll notice that. Whereas Mandela and Martin Luther King, yes, he embodied, they embody them, but it really is about their ideas and their values. And for Trump, it's less about the ideas than it is about him.
1: Him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because we started the conversation at resentment, right? (laughs) Right. Well, Um, it's, and it's interesting if you just look at the context right now, because whether it's kind of late night hosts, joking and, and, I think probably fueling some resentment among, among Republicans as if they're a joke and they're, they're dumb and they're, or if it's any number of different things happening in our context that are amplified by whether it's Fox or whether it's the liberal media or whether it's the comedians or what the the amplification of all of this causes those individuals to dig in and to probably further, resist whatever it is the other side is promoting or communicating right
2: well and there's some interesting things about resentment so one of the things i wanted to see was what would happen when trump stopped being president and probably the most important change was getting him off twitter and facebook Hmm. um because one of the things i found in the study of resentment, and I also looked at the psychological literature on it, is resentment's like a hungry beast. It needs to be fed all the time. Oh. So what we saw was a constant feeding of it. So I was curious to see what would happen when those two major avenues, I mean, you still have Fox News, stop feeding. Now, Fox News feeds it quite well. Yeah. There's always somebody they're angry with, or they're you, they're snide about or they think is insulting someone that they're they're doing a pretty good job Um, but he doesn't have his direct access as any anymore so i wanted to know uh what would happen but you're absolutely right so so now you don't have the uh conservative media feeding it you have the liberal media feeding it Hmm. in a way and i was hoping it would start to fade away but we've seen, getting back to this self-destructive behavior, that things like masks and not getting vaccinated, I mean, these are issues that are quite harmful to the individual but are very tied up in ideologies. And they show that I'm, I'm s- so angry at you that I'm going to punch myself in the face.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of uh, feeling. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch. And, again, we could start to heal it, but there's another aspect to resentment that people love. What? And that is resentment's delicious.
0: Ah, uh, it's like it, chocolate. It's
2: not schadenfreude, which is, you know, the pleasure you take in someone's misery. But resentment's delicious. Mm. That feeding of grievance, that insulting of these smart aleck, condescending liberals, it's delicious. People love it. So that's the other thing is it's, it's similar to shout very, very similar emotion. And that's one of the things that makes it hard to crack because people will look for it. They'll want to taste. They'll want yeah. to keep it going.
1: So how do you make sense of us getting somewhere new? What type of leadership works above some of the current context and helps us live into a different space?
2: <laughs> well, um, right? I, think, I think it's not so much the leader. I mean, Joe Biden is, is a fairly bland guy. Hmm. So, I mean, it's hard to get the resentment going about him. You have to say things about him. I mean, you have to work at him. So they, you'll notice the tar- the bigger target is is going to be in the media. And hmm. that's that's the bigger problem. Because as long as, see, because it's delicious, people want to watch it. And yeah. because they want to watch it, it's going to keep going. So unless the media starts to change, I mean, I, there's some interesting lawsuits going on now. Uh, particularly about the voting machines and things like that. There could be ways that the media starts to change a little bit. um, But I don't think there's a whole lot leaders can do about it right now. Uh, Some of them may have to change. Some of them may get so outrageous that they'll decide this is not constructive. Maybe I'm being overly hopeful. But no, there's no magic bullet leader that could come in and do this. And I, I think that's a fantasy. I think we've got the best we can get in one that doesn't really feed it. I mean, they have to call him a, sol- a socialist or Nancy Pelosi. They, they like to attack her because they like attacking women. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to do something like that. But I mean, Joe Biden is just not, he's a religious guy. He's got a whole bunch of the values. But again, so he doesn't create a lot of emotion. Yeah, that's the best we can do right now is have a leader that doesn't do that.
0: But yeah,
1: Yeah. um,
2: there's a lot of noise going on elsewhere that I think is going to be hard to crack.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think, again, late night TV is fueled by picking on and 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 making fun of the 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 right and conservative talk is fueled by, you know, sniping at the left and it's billions of dollars. These are billion, billion dollar industries that are, are fueling the fire and and at times very unproductive, right? Especially the talk news.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, the one thing that could help and, and I think this – the one thing that could help is if people – Lives start to improve.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: that's that's the big thing. If they start to improve, they might want to get away from this because there's other things to do. Yeah, it's awful right now because we're still at the end of the pandemic. Yeah, uh, and it's. But I mean, there are really substantive things: getting those checks, um, protecting healthcare. There's a bunch of things that might start to work against the self-destructive behavior. Because if you look at the states that aren't vaccinated, they're the poorest states in the country. Most of them are the poorest states in the country. These people are going to really suffer for views that are not good for them. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that is, is sad. But hopefully, you know, we've got huge income inequality which is part of the grievance.
0: Yep, yep. Uh,
2: we have a huge transformation of the demographics of our country. Uh, yep. That's part of the grievance. So there's a whole lot of things going on. But if people look and see that their daily lives are somehow improving, maybe we've got a shot at sort of a better way of moving forward. Because And, and what you want is you want both sides of the debate to be putting forth strong proposals for making people's lives better. And you want the public to want people to make their lives better. Once they reach that point, you can start getting rid of the self-destructiveness of of the grievance.
1: I think you're right. I mean, people being shut in for 12, 14 months, some of the shifts that are occurring contextually, whether that's digitization, globalization, and again, the demographics of our country shifting, it's... It's a lot, right? And that's only going to increase in pace, whether it's the – if it's the digitization conversation. I mean, it's, you know, what of the most – the top five jobs in the country are truck driver, sales associate, call center worker, food prep, and there's a fifth that I'm not – Probably I home mean,
2: care or, or, yeah, something related to health care work.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, but all of those are, you know, actively being disrupted because it's big right. business.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah. – and they're also not paid as well as they could be. Yep. Um, yep. And well, I mean, same for teachers too. They don't get paid particularly well. Yeah. So so these disruptions. So you've got huge labor disruptions. You've got people who, again, we're still going back. You know, years ago, I wrote a book called uh, "The Working Life: The Promise and Betrayal of Modern Work," and that that was published in two thousand. And you started to see these huge shifts of uh, people who are making you know twenty five dollars an hour who are stuck going and making minimum wage somewhere because the factory's closed. Yep. Yep. Um, and so if there could be a reindustrialization or a, where do we find those jobs uh, where are the unions and all of this, um, yep. are we can have, you know, now we have the Amazon workers. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Can, can those jobs be improved? How do we begin to think about those? So, you know, People are not crazy to have these grievances. No. They are, They are. you know, again, it's an emotion that has intelligence to it. Mm-hmm. And so rather than pitting it against reason, we have to say, what's the intelligence and the grievance? And, you know, that creates a situation where they go against their own self-interest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've told this story on the podcast a couple of times, but my, my grandfather Worked at Hormel in Fort Dodge, Iowa, and had a high school education, but died with hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank because he'd been conservative, saved, and could have a good wage. Right? That that uh, that opportunity was afforded to him. He was an electrician, and you know, today in Fort Dodge, the largest employer is the prison uh, or the Walmart, right? And so, yes, I mean, I think, I think. Those shifts, especially in our rural communities, are real, and you could look at it through Maslow even, just a very simplistic way of thinking about it. Do people feel safe, like they belong, like they are in relationship, and many are far from that. And then that makes self-actualizing even further, (laughs) right? It becomes a very, very long stretch. And that's happening in our our urban communities as well, right? So I think I I love what you said there because uh, how do we we lift the whole so that more people have access to the life they want to live, a life of meaning and a life of purpose and a life of hope and... The more people that have that in our country, I think probably the better off we are.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, of course, layered on top of all of that, we can't forget the questions of race in this country.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
2: and the fact that there are serious social justice issues, which some parts of the country who feel this grievance, that gets layered on top of it. And I'm not even sure how they process it because – it's it's a different it's a different grievance than some people have, yep. but it's it's obviously just as important, if not yep. more so, in terms of how people lead a good life or can lead a good life here.
1: Yep. Well, Joanne, as we wind down our conversation, uh, maybe share with listeners some things that have caught your eye lately, some things you've read or streamed or listened to that that. You've enjoyed. And it could have to do with leadership, but it doesn't have to. Just anything.
0: <laughs> okay. So Maybe
1: a new recipe. Let's take us to our happier plates. <laughs> An Italian recipe <laughs> or your favorite scuba diving spot. <laughs>
2: oh, I can tell you that. Well, I don't <laughs> scuba dive. I only snorkel. I, oh, snorkel. I I'm sorry. Yeah. I like the of snorkeling. Well, you know, it's really, it's really wonderful to snorkel in the Red Sea.
1: Oh, oh, really?
2: It is incredible, and not many people snorkel there. And um, yeah, it's re- and I have snorkeled in in Alaska too. Really? Um, but that's not as interesting. You see a lot of kelp.
1: Okay. <laughs> a lot
2: of plants under the water. It feels so.
1: cold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh
2: goodness! Oh, so, that's great. Yeah, I think I think that's it. And I've I've just planted my mint and basil on my windowsill and on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's all you got
2: <laughs> i'm you i'm drawing a blank so i'm sure there's there's lots of things i've been looking at lately but I, I don't know where to begin i am going to be writing a paper on Aesop's fables
1: really so tell uh, us really quick let's 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 end with that okay. i love that idea by the way
2: yeah well actually the reason why i got into it's going back to the beginning to resentment Because the best way to understand resentment, and again, showing that throughout history, human emotions have remained pretty much the same, is Aesop's fable, The Fox and the Grapes. Oh, wow. There's a fox on a hot summer day, and he's going along, and he's very thirsty, and he sees these gorgeous, juicy grapes hanging. And he looks up and says, oh, I really want those grapes. So he jumps, and he jumps, and he jumps, and he can't get the grapes. Hmm. And so he gives up and he says, oh, they're probably sour anyway, and he walks away. And there's where we get sour grapes.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: So the idea of resentment is this idea, that's why it can be self-destructive, that one of the grievances is that you can't have something, and if you can't have it, then it's bad. Okay. And uh, so good old Aesop, he tells us that. And, of course, in one of my books on work, I talk a lot about all the Aesop images of work, the grasshopper and the ant, on and on. So I thought I'd really dig more into Aesop and see what he had to say
1: about leadership. A lot of wisdom there. A lot of wisdom there, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for the good work that you do. How can people learn more about you and your work at Rutgers?
2: Well, let's see. Uh, I'm in Wikipedia. Okay. And
1: um, That's how you know you've arrived. If you have a Wikipedia page, is it correct? Is your Wikipedia page correct? Or does it say that there was some scandal in 1973 that wasn't true? I've
2: looked at it lately. Now I'm terrified to look at it. The only thing I don't like about it is it lets people know how old you are. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so Wikipedia, they can just look in the faculty at Rutgers Business School. Uh, My CV is there. And uh, there's more description of my work. Um, I'm the director of the Institute for Ethical Leadership at Rutgers, so they can go to that website, see what we're up to. Uh, Not much lately, but... Actually, we're doing doing some really interesting initiatives. We've been doing a huge initiative on race, hmm. uh, even before Black Lives Matter, uh, and program leadership programs for Black professionals and people of color uh, in the nonprofit industry. So we have okay. leadership programs for them, capacity building programs in that area, and. um that's kind of what we do. We have a really good team of faculty who do work on um, more on ethics-related things. But my institute, we do both ethics and
1: leadership. Well, I will put information to all of that that you just shared mm-hmm. in the show notes so that people have access. Okay, good. Along with, I'll, I'll also give them some ASAP fables.
2: That's a great idea.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for your mind and your good thinking, helping us better understand what it is that's swirling around us. (laughs) (laughs) We appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This conversation reminded me of a few conversations I've been having recently. So Barbara Kellerman, which I think is an episode that will follow this one, You know, she said, my favorite book I've ever written was Leadership, Essential Selections on Power, Authority, and Influence, which is, of course, another one I need to get to. But she explores Lao Tzu, Plato, Machiavelli, Paine, Marx, Engels, Tolstoy, Freud, Queen Elizabeth, Gandhi. (laughs) So, you know, you have these kind of historical writings by incredible thought leaders that have wisdom for us. And I think about my conversation with Mark and Brent about Plato, Aristotle, and Machiavelli and their work on philosophy and leadership. And then I'm speaking with Joanne, and she starts uh, talking about other philosophers and looking into the, to to the emotion of resentment and how that can fuel um, really toxic contexts and toxicity. Fascinating. So another one of these areas that I think is just ripe, and of course, this is nothing new for many listeners, but exploring some of those foundational texts and ways of thinking by some of those seminal thinkers, and even less well-known, at least in, in my world, Heidegger, uh, you know, it's critical. And I think there's a lot of content and information there for us. And I just continually am reminded by that. And then I I, I did not expect us to go into the the anthropology legs, (laughs) but again, it makes perfect sense that if you're going to talk about leadership and you're going to talk about uh, who we are as human beings, I mean, biology is a major force in that conversation. So, and we're going to touch a little bit on that with Robert Livingston, which is another upcoming episode, which was a fascinating and important conversation. So as always, thank you for exploring with me. Thank you for listening. I hope you are doing good out there in the world. And I hope some of these conversations are helping you reflect on that work. Take care, everybody. Be well. And thank you so much to Dr. Joanne Chula. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, -o Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro.
0: You've been listening to Phrenesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.